Intersect Radio, where music, faith, and life converge, with your host, Aaron the A-Train Smith. Everybody out there in internet land, here we are in Intersect again today, Tuesday, broadcasting from the drum room here on Valley Park. It's a beautiful day outside. My friend Doug next door is rehearsing his band, so there's music in the air, dogs barking, sirens going off, you know, it's it's the beauty of city life here in the Ville. And um, I have a great guest today. Uh, His name is Mr. Bill Maloney. He is an American singer-songwriter, most notably the songwriter and leader of Vigilantes of Love, an Americana alt-country rock band from Athens, Georgia. The group, unfortunately, disbanded in 2001. But Bill continued to write, singing and playing his music solo until his mid-2007 tour when he was joined on stage by his wife, Mariah Rose, who plays keyboards and sings. The two have continued to tour together ever since. Throughout his career, many of his songs have focused on his Christian faith and his family. Critically speaking, he is held in high regard as a songwriter being named one of the 100 greatest living songwriters by Pace magazine. Academically, Bill holds a degree in history from the University of Georgia. A shout out to the Bulldogs. Roof. Mr. Bill Maloney, welcome to Intersect. How are you, buddy? Aaron, kind words and thanks for having me. Uh, I'm glad you said yes, man. Glad you said yes. Oh, it's good to be here. It's it's really good. What have you been up to today? Uh, I've been working on a new record. I've got, I write about 50 songs a year, so I kind of do the quick demos. You know, they're they're not really, you know, sophisticated demos, just a couple quick ideas. And then I come back and start, you know, hammering through those things and seeing what's going to make the cut or what's going to go for another record. I, I tend to write sort of a batch of conceptual songs, Aaron. And so uh, like the, the track that you guys just played is off the, uh, the new album, Forest Full of Wolves, probably the most political song on the track. It's, it was a, I, I tell people it was a resist record after uh, 45 was elected. And I don't usually go there, but I, I felt like just given the state of the union, so to speak, or the state of disunion, uh, it was time to yeah. have some of those songs go in that direction. But it's also a record full of love songs. There are quite a few love songs on it because I think that's the, the epicenter of, of how we stay strong in the midst of things that don't seem to be uh, 
you know, going well and stuff like basic love and compassion kind of get thrown under the right. under the bus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all that to say, you know, today, uh, long-winded answer, I'm just working on, on demos for a record that might come up this year. Um, toward the end of the year, maybe uh, there's a, a reissue of the vinyl uh, Killing Floor, which was the third album we did with uh, with Mark Hurd producing, and uh, okay. that record is the one that sprung Vigilantes of Love back in '92. So it's kind of nice. We're actually releasing that on vinyl. Uh, it was one okay. of those Kickstarter program things. So that's that's kind of a cool uh-huh. thing. I'm looking forward to that. Drops in November. That's great. Cool. How many records have this. you done? Uh, officially, there have been eighty. Uh, but that doesn't wow. count a lot of the, uh, there was, a, there was a time period when we, we were really broke and it was after the band broke up and I'd been through a divorce and things were, it, it was really tight. And I was releasing stuff basically on one and two tracks, uh, through a little, uh, small company up in Chicago called fundamental records. And it was just coming out as kind of like a, uh, you know, you buy onto the catalog and I would release like 12 songs a month. Um, uh, so those songs, I, I don't even actually know where some of them are now. Um, I don't remember them. Uh, there were about 100 songs, 120 songs done over a year, year and a half period. Uh, but anyway, it was, it was just a way to kind of connect the dots. You, you know how it is. I mean, you're a musician. Uh-huh. You know, some days are feast and some days are famine. You just connect the right. dots. So that's been one of the driving dynamics. So uh, you just dropped a record and, and you hope to do another one by the end of the year? Probably get one out by the end of the year if I, if, if things go well, yeah. I'm just in the very front end stages right now. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Forest Full of Wolves is the record that I was referring to. And that, that's what you just heard yeah. there. Uh, that that showed up in January. So we, we released that. And um, I, I'm really fortunate. I, I'm blessed. I, I don't mind using that word. I've got a handful of fans. It, it's not many, but it's a handful of, you know, ardent fans who were, they've just been very good about staying up with what I do. And, uh, and, and that's, that's, you know, supremely helpful. And it's also encouraging too at this day and age when the lifespan of a, you know, an average band or an artist is what, you know, two, three, maybe four records. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a rough, rough place to be. Mm-hmm. How do you distribute your music? These Most days? of the stuff, uh, Aaron, I, I run up on Bandcamp, uh, which is a pretty mm-hmm. good, you know, uh, and there's, there's no strings attached to it. People can stream it, you know, and listen to it, or they can, you know, um, you know, sustain the artist and, and buy them. And I, I, I don't like the side of it. If one of the things that happened after the whole, you know, rubble, the sorting through the rubble of the big industry sort of falling apart and, you know, mm-hmm. independent music taking a, taking charge again, uh, you know, I, the artist nowadays has to do everything. They have to, he or she has to be their own promoter, their own, you know, flim flam, who do you ought to buy this and not that kind of person. I, I detest right. that side of it. I really do. Uh, it, to me, it's just a hair breadth away from boasting and I, I don't really like it, but I've, like I said, I've been lucky with people doing a fair degree of word of mouth. I don't sell a lot of records there, but I, I sell enough to people who are, you know, also listening to Americana bands that I really like, some of the newer groups. Uh, I, I guess Wilco and Sunvolt wouldn't be new anymore necessarily, but, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have a toe in the water of the older stuff, you know, like the Burrito Brothers or Graham Parsons or the Birds, uh, or even further back, you know, into real old school country, you know, like Jimmy Rogers or, you know, folks like that. So I, I mm-hmm. my my fans are fairly astute, it seems like, when it comes to music, and I, I really treasure that, and I, I take that trust you know, fairly deeply and try to, you know, make sure they're satisfied with what I'm doing. So, yeah. So tell me, how did you, how did you, and when did you start writing songs? What was the motivation Um, to that? 
Yeah, I, I was I was a drummer first. My my dad was a semi pro jazz drummer, and you know, so the house was always full of really groovy, great records. You know, uh, he was a big fan of Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, he would also put on folks like you know uh, Philly Joe Jones and Elvin, uh, you know Elvin Jones. You know, and I, yeah. I love listening to that stuff. I didn't necessarily know who the artists were, but later on I did find out. You know, and. You know, it's like, oh, well, so, you know, why is it that, you know, John Coltrane, why is it that Jimi Hendrix kind of sounds like he's riffing John Coltrane? You know, well, there's a reason mm-hmm. for that because Jimmy yeah. was, you know. And mm-hmm. and so I loved hearing it, but I was surrounded by that growing up. I took, you know, the deal with my parents about buying me a drum kit. This is when I was like 12, 13, 14 years old, Aaron, was you have to take orchestral drums first. You got to learn the rudiments. So right. I, I finally did come up with a with a gold sparkle Ludwig kit on my 14th birthday, and then I just locked myself in a basement and and started you know playing along to bands like Cream and the Hendrix Experience and people like that. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, you know, music can corrupt youth. At least that's what they were saying in my day and age. It's like actually, <laughs> music was really pretty salvific for me. Uh, yeah. It kept me out of trouble and it it kept me focused on just trying to get better and trying to get better. But I didn't actually start playing guitar until I was 31. And and that's when I, I mean, I'm talking like learning the first three chords and, and really? then I just kind of kept at it. Yeah. I, I was really late in the game. So. Now, when yeah. did, when did uh vigilante start? We started officially in 91 in Athens, Georgia, and I'd been playing drums in a lot of other Athens bands, but, but fine honing my skills as kind of an acoustic player and had come up with my first set of, you know, songs that I really liked, you know, 40 or 50 uh-huh. songs. And, um, the fellow that played keyboards in the band that I was working with at the time went to Germany one summer, Aaron, his name was Mark Hall, and he bought an accordion and brought it back. And so we just decided to be a folk duo. Well, pretty soon it was actually easier to book gigs as a folk duo than it was trying to put a four or five piece band in a room. So we, mm-hmm. we did better as a duo in the Athens Atlanta scene. This was back 1991. And we put these, uh, the first record was jugular and we recorded that in three days in a barn. And then the next record was a, a, a little small label out in L.A. that put it together called Core Entertainment. That was Driver the Nails. And that record actually surfaced on the national radar. And we got a little bit of – just a nice little bit of ink. There was a magazine back then called Spin that reviewed it favorably. I think yeah. Rolling Stone did a mm-hmm. little byword on it. But the next record was the one where uh, Dan Russell and Fingerprint Records and Dr. Chuck Long and Mark Hurd became part of kind of a production team for us. And we were lucky to have Mark's just just stunning production idea. He liked really kind of murky, uh, garagey kind of mixes, and that's what he did with Killing Floor. And it, it it resonated very very well with the college indie scene. And then we mm-hmm. had Pete Buck. Pete came in and produced three or four songs mm-hmm. for us, so mm-hmm. it didn't hurt having you know his name on it either. So it kind of catapulted the thing, and and that's that's kind of how I started. So by ninety four ninety five, I was doing music full time, you know, and and, and and when you started this 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 venture, you had just started to play guitar. Pretty much. I'd been playing since, you know, 84, somewhere around there. So I'd been on it like a little bit less than 10 years. The woodshedding was probably good seven or eight years. Yeah. All right. How many bands did you ever play drums in it? And did you ever play drums on one of your own records? I, I do. I play drums. I play drums on about half of Killing Floor, and I play drums on an, on a couple other things on the first two records. I sure did. And I still do on all the, all the stuff I play now. It's just mm-hmm. very simple, straight, you know, two, four stuff. That's really it. I, I don't get, get too far out there. I'm not, you know, super syncopated like, like you are. But I, 
I, I do what I do, given you know what I've got out here in the desert, so to speak. There's not a lot of musicians where we live. We live in a very rural area of northern mm. New Mexico, and there are some great musicians here, but they're not necessarily playing you know Americana, a lot of ranchero music and things like that, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, it's just not. It's not like I can find like a rock bass player necessarily. So what it yeah. did was over the last ten years, it's forced me to learn how to be a better guitarist. How to, I picked up lap steel and learned bass the last few years. So I, I just kind of do it all and try to make it sound like a band. So, cool. um, you know, Brian Quincy Newcomb, he paid me a huge compliment yeah. about two years ago. He said, you know, I listened to these new records you're doing out in the desert. He said, I got to tell you, it sounds like there's a band in the room, like, you know, four individual personalities mm-hmm. each contribute. I said, Brian, that is the sweetest thing. He's just a sweetheart <laughs> anyway. But I said, Brian, that is the sweetest they're, thing anybody's ever said They're four me's. Me. They're four me's. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, uh, you know, I have this romantic vision of New Mexico um, with cacti and mountain ranges mm-hmm. and stuff. Describe your neighborhood for us. Well, it's a rural community. It's an organic farming community. A lot of growers mm-hmm. out here. Uh, it's right on the uh, right, pretty close to the Rio Grande. I mean, it's within about two miles. So there's a lot of tributaries coming off the mountains. Uh, for us out here, it's very important to get a reasonable snowfall because the snow melt is what fills the tributaries in the rivers, and that's what the growers use. So northern New Mexico is right. Yeah, it is cactus, but it's not you know like. Uh, you know, it's not dewy, you, you. It's not that. It's not yeah. cow skulls in the <laughs> desert or anything like that. There, uh, we, we. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a minority out here actually because of the Latino population. It, New Mexico is a very poor state, but it's a state with an unbelievable depth of potential. Uh, like you've already mentioned, some of it because of the beauty, because of the mountains, but some of it just because the spirit of the people have have withstood so much. Um, how, do, how can I say this tactfully, intrusion from, from white world that tends to want to come in and price tag it and own it and market it. And it hasn't always worked out so well for the locals, so to speak. And when I say locals, I'm talking, mm-hmm. you know, eight or nine generations back. That's the kind of, mm-hmm. you know, community mm-hmm. I live in. That people can remember they didn't move very far away. Uh, you know, Taos is fairly close. Santa Fe is the big town for us. Uh, but even Santa Fe is, is already as it is. It's, it's not a huge city. Uh, and I kind of like a little of the, uh, the lacking the metro sheen. I, I had so much of that living on the East Coast and traveling that 85, 95 corridors. I know you toured, you know, all over the place. I mean, where is there a place you haven't been? And I, mm. I, I kind of like being able to kind of become invisible out here, you know, yeah. to a certain. Mm-hmm. That, does that make sense? You know what I mean? I, I, I kind of had makes my That makes a lot of sense to me. The heavy yeah, duty metro. You know, there's just a lot of stimuli response, I think, involved in it. And I I got, I kind of, I think it might be over it. So, (laughs) well, you know, when I join a monastery, (laughs) when I used to live in uh, California and I was commuting from, well, not even then, when I was going home to North Carolina from Sacramento. Oh, right. Albuquerque, yeah, Albuquerque was always the oasis. You know, stop in Albuquerque, uh-huh. spend the night, hang out for the day, leave the next day. Uh-huh. You know, um, I, it was just something about Albuquerque. It, it was just something romantic, like I said. Did you ever get that into old, like old said, town, Albuquerque? Yeah. Yeah, yeah see, that's, 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 that is the New Mexico that I live in. That's it. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's okay. very unchanged to the the forces of modernity. There, you know, you you really got to look hard to find a Starbucks, so to speak, you know, or anything representative yeah. of that sort of. And I love it for that reason because I had so much of that back there, and you just start realizing we, we grow a lot of our own food out here, Aaron. So that's kind of. You know, it's a lot of work, but it's fun, you know, and mm-hmm. I never thought I could do it before. My skill set as far as playing music outside of music, it sucks. I, I can't do anything, you know. I'm hmm. a true modern, you know. I, I'm a consumer, and, and I sometimes hate myself for it. It's like, can't you contribute anything? So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting getting my feet wet on things that I've never done before, uh, but really So what are you growing? What are you growing? Uh, we are gr- yeah, right now we're we're well, it's a little early for things like spinach, but we're growing you know all kinds of squash and stuff like that. Uh, th- those things tend to do pretty well. We're growing herbs. We have an herb garden that we keep up pretty well. Uh, tried growing beans out here the first year. I, I don't honestly know how people survived when they first came out here because I, I think the climate shifted a little bit. You've got to have very very hot weather to grow uh, you know pintos or black beans and things like that. So that that crop just failed miserably. Uh, but um, hmm. so that that's some of the stuff that we've got going on. Yeah. Okay. No chickens and cows. No, we haven't got there yet. We we, okay. we we do talk about the chickens and the goats though. <laughs> Mariah Mariah's see Mariah is was a part of a, a Mennonite community for a spell. So she got oh, really? her hands She was. She was down in down in Dublin, Georgia. Uh, she was uh, she and her family, she was a young teenage girl and she had uh, duties in the in the dairy. And she was really good at it. She loved it. She loved the farming side of it. And, you know, she's a she's a great dressmaker, you know, seamstress and all of that. So she mm-hmm. kind of fine honed a lot of those, uh, you know, prairie home companion skills, so to speak. So uh, she, she's kind of led the charge. Into, we well, we had known each other in Atlanta. Uh, but I, you know, uh, she, she was, she was married at the time. I, I, I knew her in Atlanta and then there was like distance of like 10 or 15 years in between that. And I didn't know her. And then when I was playing through Lexington, Kentucky, uh, I, I met her, met her again. And I, I kind of vaguely remembered, but that's, that's where the uh, connection was. Mm-hmm. Cool. And you've been married how long now? We've been, we're, we've been married 12 years. Cool. Congratulations. <laughs> well, yeah. I, th- I think you and it's your wife is Susan, right? Yes. Yeah, you guys have been married a, quite a spell. Uh, it'll be 10 years in February. There you go. Okay, good deal. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that, man. Be, is she a musician uh, as well? Does she play? No, but she really likes music, and she's, we like the same kind of music, which which is really great, you know? Right on. Yeah, your your tastes and, are pretty uh, eclectic, though. You're you go everywhere with your uh, with your musical taste. I think, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. I like you know, I like one kind of music, and that's good music. So <laughs> good, good music is everywhere, you know, in all these Excellent. different genres and or you know, singer songwriter things, Americana. I live in the midst of Americana here in Nashville. I'm oh, surrounded by it, you know. Yeah. Um, do you get a lot of so, session work there in Nashville? Is that available? I do not. Um, I have a drum studio set up here. I do sessions for people from from my studio, but so far it's only been uh, people who don't live here in Nashville. Right. I did. I did one thing for my next door neighbor. Um, we we've, we've said we're going to start getting together in the mornings. I'll just start playing a groove and he'll just start making up stuff on the guitar and then 
write a song to it, but we've only done it once. So he's, he's pretty did you busy like, guy. Did you like the results? Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. And he had a client that really liked it too, that said that he wanted to write lyrics to it. But that client lives in France and comes oh over here every now and well, he comes over. He, I think he comes to the States maybe three times a year. So, you know, maybe something will come from it. Who knows? You know, you never know about those my, things. My, uh, my uh, experience with your drumming has been through the sevens, uh, through the yeah. 77s. Probably, I've probably seen you at least half a dozen times, and I've just wowed every single time. It's like you're, you're such a song-sensitive drummer, and, and that's, you, you don't overpower it. It's tasteful. Uh, it, it, you know who Kenny Arnoff is, obviously. You know he it's oh, that yeah. kind of drum. It's like the perfect groove and setup, and never missing. It's like golly, it's so instinctive. It's just I don't know. I I, I stand in awe. Of, you know when you're behind the kit doing your things. So it's great. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that coming from another drummer. Uh, I'm not That's a drummer that much anymore. <laughs> I, I know how to play drums, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put that that label on me. So, but you're you're okay. you're amazing. That's great. Enough of me. I want to talk about you. <laughs> All right. Well, tell me. We'll tell me. It. Okay. So, so you had jazz growing up in the house. Uh, do you have brothers and sisters. I do. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. One of one, the Are brother lives in Indianapolis. My, they're not. They're not. Okay. My my sister is is actually a a, 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 a kind of a physical therapist and, and works in New York City. And she does, uh, you know, groups with lots of music in it. So in some ways, she's kind of a DJ. She's always piecing together new stuff and dropping names that I've never heard. You know, hey, have you heard the new mm-hmm. single by so and so? You know, and it's like, nah, I, I'm I'm really just a dinosaur. I don't know any of the names you're mentioning to me. So, but we try to connect. She doesn't really get the Americana thing. She thinks it's it's all done by Hicks, you know, kind of thing. So, oh really? Anyway, well, she's a city girl. I mean, what do you say? She, yeah. you know, I don't think I could dynamite her out of New York City. I mean, she's been there like. 30 some years but um yeah i think probably i got the music bug you know more than more mm-hmm. than the rest of them so and then you know so when what, i was a kid you know somewhere around 16 it was listening to you know charlie watts and ringo and that's kind of what destroyed the jazz thing i was never going to be a jazz drummer it's like now that this is where i want to be so mm-hmm. that kind of happened to me I, I i didn't know what kind of drummer i was going to be when i when i started out i was I started out in an R&B band, you know, I was listening mm-hmm. to, uh, listening to Bernard Purdy a lot and, uh, Oh yeah. All Pretty the James Purdy. Brown. Yeah. All the James Brown drummers. We didn't know their names then, you know, just, we just recognized right. them. And, and as we got older, we began to find out who was playing on records and stuff like that. But, yeah. um, were you you've met uh, a lot of your heroes then, haven't you? I mean, you've 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 kind of met a lot of those fellows over the years, like the Muscle Shoals gangs and stuff like that. Well, I met Pretty Purdy. I met Papa Joe Jones. Um, Benny Caliuta, Steve oh, Smith, nice. uh, Tony Williams. No, uh, Tony um, Williams is a monster. Yeah, he was. Um, um, excuse me, but I'm having one of those moments. Who was the drummer with Jimi Hendrix? Oh, Mitch Mitchell. Thank you so much. Well, but that, well, the, well, Mitch Mitchell was in the experience, and then yeah, um, yeah. Billy, Buddy Miles. Billy Cox, Buddy Miles, yeah, yeah Billy, Billy, Billy Miles, Cox, yeah, Buddy Miles and Billy Cox were in the band of Gypsies, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, you know, Billy Cox lives here in Nashville. He's still here. I think he works at. I a, did not know that. Yeah, I think he works at a hardware store somewhere here in town. Okay, man, that was a similar uh, record. Hey, Good I'm going to tell. I got to tell you this story. Okay. So, uh, so my mom used to live with us when she was living in her her last few years. She lived here with us, and she had, uh, you know, as. As it goes, she broke her hip and fell, had to have hip surgery, yeah, went into rehab and just totally changed. Her dementia kicked in. She never came out of that nursing home. She, after rehab, she refused to walk anymore. And I think it's because she was in pain, kind of, but then she forgot how to express herself. She forgot how to talk and make a sentence. And um, the uh, staff used to tell me, my mom was a sweetheart. And the staff I believe would, it. You're a sweetheart, yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway. But, um, you, but staff, just, to, just to backtrack a second, I, I've heard the similar thing of like, you know, older people having, you know, hip surgery or falling and breaking an arm, and then all of a sudden everything just exponentially starts to deteriorate, and it's so sad. Right, right. She couldn't, she couldn't make a sentence. You know, we just smile and nod, you know. Um, But anyway, the staff would pull me aside and tell me that, oh, man, your mother is so mean. You know, she won't do anything we ask her to do. She fights. I was going, you you must have the wrong person. They said, no, why don't you come in and observe? Because they had to teach her how to eat again, you know. Right. So I, Susan and I go down there one day and we sit behind this this glass where she can't see us. And sure enough, man, she is mean as a tiger and I just can't believe it. So we come out and walk through the front door and it's like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? And we sit at the table and there's this other lady there. And, um, we start talking. She's in rehab for something. I don't know. She goes, she asks me, what do I do? I said, well, I'm a musician. What do you, what, what kind of musician? I said, well, well you know, I, I play drums and, and, and I like to play all sorts of music. And she went, do you know Billy Cox? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I went, uh, I know who he is. She said, I was married to Billy Cox. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. Have you ever heard of Jimi Hendrix? And I went, uh, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, Aaron, that's incredible. She said, she said, well, that Woodstock festival, you know, that Woodstock festival that happened years you ago. Know that. Yes, ma'am. She said, we flew into that Woodstock festival in a helicopter. I have never seen so many people before in my life. And it was just the most amazing thing. And then we come back to New York and go to Jimmy's studio. And, you know, I'm sitting there and my mouth is like wide open. And none of these other people at the table have any clue of what's going on here. You know, they're all young people, you know, working in the nursing home. They don't have a clue about what this lady is saying and what she has experienced. You know, it was just like one of those moments, you know. One of those moments, but boy, it was great. So tell me, oh, that's uh, 
Yeah. Fantastic. What a great Did story. You... What I, thank you for sharing that. That is just incredible. <laughs> that record was, I mean, Machine Gun, the opening track, it's worth oh, the price yeah. of admission. And oh, everything yeah, on man. it is like this statement. I mean, it, it it's so hard to believe. I mean, this is analog days, right? That three mm-hmm. musicians could make that kind of, that sonic thing that came off the stage that night. Un- unbelievable. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, it was, man. Those are, those are special times. Oh, my gosh. New things were happening, you know? Yeah, there were no boundaries. I mean, it's, you know, and I think about that because so many musicians, I mean, you know, Coltrane died at an early age. We lost Hendrix at an early age. I, you know, do the streaming thing sometimes, Aaron, through Pandora, and I'm always finding I'm reading the bios, on, and we have it set up for a number of stations, but mostly the jazz stations, old school jazz. Mm -hmm. And I read the bios, Mm -hmm. and you realize, wow, these guys, and men and women, worked so hard sometimes with a little bit of recognition, but they were just trying to connect the dots of a life so they could keep doing the thing they loved. And they, right. they didn't know, sometimes they disappeared. I mean, they really did fall through the cracks, literally in some ways, uh, you know, and by the end of their life, you know, they, they, people just lost track of them, but they, you know, played on, you know, a Bill Evans record or some massive thing, you know, Red Garland or Ben Webster, all those guys, you know, it's like, it, life was not neat and tidy. And, and they weren't going to get the cover of Rolling Stone. They might get a write-up and downbeat back then, but you yeah. realize that that took a lot of courage, a special sort of risk those guys and girls were taking back then. And I I stand, I really do just stand in awe of that sort of um, energy, you know, that they that they yeah. put out because they just wanted to play their instrument. Yeah, it's like uh, you know John Ellis wrote a review on one of your records, huh? and he he made a he made a statement he said making art is a risky economic proposition yeah i, I know i know john yeah. here here yeah and it is man you know you got to be dedicated you know it it takes a lot of guts to want to be an artist and and to go for it you know, I, I, think got, the, I think that's true there's always something to explore and people have said well you know 80 records i mean i, I truly i understand this people said well you know i I understand when people stop listening. We we were fortunate to have Buddy Miller produce a record. It's about 20 years old now, Audible Sigh. We had all the guests in Nashville playing on the thing. You know, Brady Blade, you know, played drums on it. Oh, yeah. And Emmy, came, Emmy Lou came in and sang on a track. But the core of the band was still Vigilantes. But Buddy contributed like a 12-string part, and Tammy Rogers played a fiddle part. And it was great having Julie Miller. Julie sang on, you know, six or seven songs, and it came out cool. really, really well. But the, the uh, you know, at the end of the day, I sort of felt like, you know, a lot of people, you know, the record took off in England, but it didn't take off in America very much. It was a handful of people, mostly the Cornerstone crowd, and, you know, God bless them for being there for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was hard to sustain the band after that because they kept coming to me saying, well, you know, we've done this record. We're, we're getting these comparisons to the Americana bands, you know, Uncle Tupelo and, and Sunvolt. And why are we not? We just didn't know the right people. And you start realizing there's a... There's a sad side of music where sometimes it is an inner circle and sometimes it is who you know. And you try not to right. dwell on that because if you do, it'll make you bitter. And that's that's not a good place to be. So mm-hmm. you just take it as it comes, you know. And, and that's what those guys that I mentioned earlier in the jazz world, they, they were taking it as it came. And I've, I've tried to kind of do that, too, and just keep pressing on. And I understand it when people say, hey, well, record number 80, I, I – I've got 40 Bill Malley records that I'm like, right, how many do you need for crying out loud? <laughs> you know, you don't need 80 or 81, but, but I need them. I need them. I have to keep making it or, or there's, there's something inside me that's not, not happy. So that's mm-hmm. the reason why I keep digging and exploring and, and seeing what happens. So, um, mm-hmm. and if people come on board, then I'm grateful, but if not, yeah, I, I totally understand it, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Was it economics that broke up the band? It was. I, I, I honestly, it was. I think at the end of the day, we we had the the management was a little sketchy here and there. We couldn't find people who really felt like they they had their finger on the pulse and were competent. But at the end of the day, I felt like I couldn't. And in fact, two of the band members, uh, Jake Bradley, a phenomenal bass player, and Ken Hudson, lived there in Nashville. Uh, and I, I know they're fans of you, and, and you might know them on a first name basis. But those guys went to Nashville. I could not promise them a a living. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we had done on the road together three or four years. I think Jake was with me for almost six years. And I I called them together after we did a record called Summershine in 2001. It got great reviews, but the the label was was pretty sketchy about it, uh, about promoting it. But 9-11 hit, and that was when everything went into sort of freeze frame. Nobody knew what was going to happen next, and the the record industry in some ways kind of died. So we had a meeting in in the – in January of 2002 in my kitchen. And I said, look, I, there's a van out there and we can get in that van and do 180 shows trying to promote this record, or we can, we can call it quits. And we, we, Mm. we do it with honor and we do it with love or we can, we can get in there and slog it out again. But I personally don't think anything's going to happen. There's no energy behind this thing that we've had to offer. And everybody, I said, get back to me. You don't have to answer now. And, and pretty much, I think everybody had come with their answer already. Everybody was said, well, let's let's just let's just put the period at the end of the sentence, and and let it be. And that's that's when we called it off. And it was economics. Mm. Man, yeah, it was just you know you you got to be able to promise people something when they're playing in your band, and when you can't do it, it's right. like well, and they're all doing well. I'm I'm glad for them. They've all improved as musicians. They've gotten even better than they were were then. So I know that's exciting for them, and they've stayed working, and that's very cool too. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like your band. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, a, a collective, it, you know, where not it was really. Every... No, it wasn't really. I, I wanted the illusion of a band, you know, to a certain extent, because I, I wanted the fellowship mm-hmm. of a band to tell you the truth, uh, Aaron, mm-hmm. I, more than anything, I, you know, all those early Beatles movies, you know, like hard days night, you know, I really thought, wow, those guys are just like family. I want a family like that. You know, yeah. and honestly, yeah. I know that sounds infantile and kind of juvenile in some ways, but that's really how I wanted a band to be. But nobody else is writing, so it, it sort of all worked. You know, I did the writing, and then we all got together, you know, rehearsed it, made the record, went out and played behind it. And and that was a good way to go. I, I'm grateful to the REM guys because when Athens, when they first started in Athens and came out with Chronic Town and Murmur in 81 and 82, that was kind of the template for a lot of us in Athens at the time to to mimic like you get in the van and you go out and you play, you know, 40 shows a year and then you try to up it to 80 and, you know, you try to get that little indie record deal and you work it. And they, they were the template for us. So in a lot of ways, yeah. you know, early yeah. REM and their hard work was, um, was, was kind of, you know, the motivator for us or at least the star mm-hmm. that we kind of tracked by for a while. A lot of people don't remember that the REM guys, because I, I knew Peter Buck pretty well uh, and all the guys in the band really, they, they were pretty high profile in Athens. But I just want to say this about that. People fail to, to – they, they forget that REM, for the first two years when they were out there, they were sleeping on the stages a lot of times of the club they just played in because they couldn't afford a hotel room. And the, man, wow. the manager of the club would come let them out the next morning. That's the commitment to those early records that they had. They still hadn't yeah. made it yet, yeah. and they were still just barely getting by. Man, didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't know it either. They could always come back to Athens and play the sold-out show at the 40-watt club, and that would pay everybody's rent for a month. But they, they were working hard, and, you know, God bless them. They, it, it didn't happen overnight, and they were fine-honing their skills, you know. So, yeah, I was, it was fun to watch that, uh, that development with those guys as they were making records. Do you know Matthew Ryan? 
I do know Matthew. He's a, he's a good heart. I like Matthew a lot. He says the same thing about you. I saw him this morning. He's he's next door having a <laughs> rehearsal. Oh, very and, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't. What the, he's working with another band now. I think I, I can't remember who they are. Um, well, it's <laughs> Steve Latinations on drums. Uh, Doug Lancio on guitar. And okay. I can't remember the bass player's name. I just met the bass player this morning. Right on. I can't remember his right name. On. But uh, yeah. yeah, he's getting ready to do, to do start a, a regular Wednesday night uh, show at a club here in Nashville. And um, and I think they're going to the UK for two weeks. Um, right on. That's July. great. Well, good for him. Yeah. I, he's He is the one of the edgiest, lyrically edgiest songwriters. His stuff can get pretty dark and and it's mm. you know pretty pretty uh, pretty moody. But his his early records, uh, Mayday was the first one, and I think the second one was called East Autumn Grin. They they I still play them. They they just don't age. Really? You know he just uh-huh. he just delivers this really. He his drummer was a guy a producer drummer named I think Craig Comp was his name. Oh I don't yeah, know if you recognize that? Yeah, Craig Comp. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah Craig yeah. Craig was his drummer producer for the first couple records. That's cool. Well, he t- yeah. told me to uh, be sure and tell you hello. Well, tell him I so. love him, and, and if you, if you you see him again, and then not, I'll, I'll catch him on Facebook or something. I'm glad he's out there knocking it out. Yeah, I see him from time to time because he and Doug uh, work together a lot. They record together a lot, and so yeah. Right on. Good deal. That's he's a very man. gifted songwriter, and he's kept at it. You know, he's always got his. You know, he he's that combination. I I, I think Matt is kind of the combination between, um, like the Clash and Tom Waits, and mm. and and he's got his own thing, no doubt about it. But he loves those reference points. I can hear that in his music. Okay. Wow. So tell me, which yeah, one of your record, which one of your records was uh, the hardest to make? The hardest to make was probably the record we did um, for a Nashville label. The record was called Summershine, and it was kind of a nod to the sort of West Coast psychedelia. I've always been a fan of the the neo-psychedelia thing, Uh, even when it crossed with the Americana thing, like in the Burrito Brothers or or the Birds, you know. That's Mm -hmm. where I think the meeting up was, and I love that stuff. So we made this, you know, kind of jangly guitar neo-psychedelic record. Um, after Audible Psy, it was the, I think everybody wanted us to make Son of Audible Psy, but it's like, well, we've got, there was 21 songs in that session and another 10 that came out on an EP that we recorded in the UK, like in 2000, yeah, 2000, 2001, um, called Cross the Big Pond. It's like, we've kind of been there and done that. So I wanted to try this different thing and the record was Summershine and it, it came out getting really, really good reviews from the indie press early on, but I just don't think there was a lot of energy behind it. But that, that was a hard record to make because I wanted you know, string machines and Mellotrons and, and that sort of, you know, strawberry fields forever kind of yeah. zeitgeist to it. And that's where mm-hmm. we went with with a great deal of it. And it was fun to make an engineer uh, producer friend named Tom Lewis in Athens had his hand in that. Um, um, and he was up inside a deep. I, I don't know that Tom slept on some nights. We would, we would walk out of the studio at midnight and I'd be back at 10 the next morning and Tom would just be there looking haggard and he would already have like, you know, three mixes of the song we just finished the night before done. And uh, yeah. he said, well, so what do you think of this? You know, and Tom was just, he was so just deep inside it. Anyway, it was a fun record to make, but it was a very uh, challenging record to make as well. Mm-hmm. And when did you make this record? 
That record was 2001, 2002, somewhere around that general area. We probably recorded in 2000, late 2000 and released it in the middle of 2001. Mm-hmm. Because it was right mm-hmm. in, as I remembered, it was right in front of 9/11, and it had been like out for a couple, you know, a couple of three months, and then you know, all of a sudden, we realized we had this tour planned of England, and all kinds of promises made. You know the story, this and that, and you know, it, things just didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Things didn't happen, man. but it's okay. You know, the record was the it was the payoff. It, it's never really been about the coin. It's really been more about you know, does this record, does it still resonate? Does it still sound good? Did we make something um, you know that has a, a just a, just a kiss mm-hmm. of something eternal about it? And and that's yeah. kind of what we felt about the album. So, well, um, I had Steve Hendelong on the show a couple of weeks ago. No, oh, super and, gifted um, individual. That guy's great. Yeah. And um, I asked him how lyrics come to him, you know, and and he says that he kind of listens to conversations, hear people talking and every now and then somebody will say something and he'll he'll go, oh, that would make a great song. And he writes it down and he doesn't come. He doesn't come back to it until like he's making a record and he'll. He'll go through his notes and see a title and go, I think I'll write something to this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so how do you do it? How, how do well, you write songs? Well, see, do it. I mean, that's, that's a great deal. If you hear something in a conversation, especially something that's sort of in the, you know, basic vernacular, it could be a song title or a phrase. And I'll write a whole song around that phrase. Is it becomes the payoff line, so to speak, like a Dylan song. And then mm-hmm. there are other things that are more, um, you know, thematic or conceptual that I'll think of. Um, I was, you know, e- even though I, I necessarily wouldn't recommend his life as like the most exemplary life, I, I kind of became a little bit of a, of a, a, a mini scholar on Jack Kerouac. Um, okay. You know, he, he he really was in in some ways kind of like you know what what Coltrane was to the you know the alto sax and uh, mm-hmm. uh, or the soprano sax. And Kerouac was that to the English language. He he just kind of imploded it blew it up exploded it and uh it doesn't mean all of it was great because he was he was navigating uncharted waters but i do like a lot of that stream of consciousness thing that's grounded in very much uh, an americana thing the american experience you know he liked Mm -hmm. overhearing conversations at diners he liked you know uh, you know, uh, you know, trying to make eye contact with a beautiful young lady at a bar or something, and hearing the conversations float around it. He would write about this sort of stuff. It was it was very liberating to realize that I didn't have to write in a um, a very clinical sort of fashion. So there's a certain stream of consciousness. I call it sort of taking snapshots. If you listen to the old song, uh, yeah. it actually broke the band nationally. It was a song called "Welcome to Struggleville," but it's a very snapshot sort of somewhat biblically referenced song uh, that goes through different sort of images. And, and I like that cascading sort of image uh, approach to things. And then, you know, rallying the song together with a batch of songs and saying, you know, this is a conceptual kind of record um, and putting them there. But I'll have songs that I sort of classify as like political songs, like this recent record, like I said, was a resist record with a few love songs sprinkled in. But I had those songs specifically grouped together as kind of, you know, friends and neighbors. They were all going to come out together because it reinforces yeah. the theme of, you know, resist. resist. And let's, uh-huh. let's get back to this thing that's what's, what's making us sick. What's making our hearts cold? What's making us, you know, lack love and compassion? Why are we not, why are we becoming fearful and protective when we ought to be reaching out? That was kind of the, the bigger mm-hmm. theme 
And I think that strides both sides of the aisle. It doesn't really matter what political party. It's like these are things that if you're a person of faith, and, and particularly of Christian faith, I, I think that's a rally cry for all of us to sort of, you know, wake up and say, now, now am I succumbing to the, the fear of the age, or how do I push back against that? So that's what Forest Full right. of Wolves was about. I don't very very rarely write political records. Most of the stuff, you know, you know, kind of being a son of the South has a a certain degree of southernness to it. Um, but definitely the Americana, the American experience is kind of the thing I draw from. So I've I've read you know books you know by Kerouac or, or you know um, you know biographies of Woody Guthrie, uh, people like that. People you know way back in the you know, on the highways and byways of an America, especially when it was down and out. Um, and I'm a big fan of that era of American history of sort of like the, the 20s into the Great Depression and on through World War II. Uh, that would include the, the Great Depression and, and the mm-hmm. Dust Bowl and all that. That's, that's mm-hmm. kind of standard stuff for, you know, folk okay. singers, Americana singers, songwriters. I use that a lot. I get into that world. Yeah, yeah I can hear that. I can hear that. I want it to sound authentic, and I think, you know, I mean, you've been in a touring van before, a touring band, and you know how that works. There's there's not a lot of safety net out there, is there? You know, you always feel like you're a little more vulnerable than the next fellow. And Mm -hmm. even though that's not the same thing as, you know, hitching up a wagon and, you know, going to Oklahoma and then, you know, bottoming Mm -hmm. out and going to California, no, it's not the same thing as the the Jode family and Grapes of Wrath. (laughs) But it is an experience that's very immediate. All of a right. sudden, you recognize acts of kindness, like you know the the hotel desk clerk that says, "Hey, good morning." There's more coffee over there. You recognize those acts of mm-hmm. kindness. For some reason, when you're out there on the road, it means more. Uh, right. and those gestures of of kindness and goodwill. I've learned to sort of say, "Wow, this is a great country. These everybody here has got the potential to be." a conduit of kindness and love. And it doesn't even have to be dressed up necessarily with the agenda of, you know, trying to convert somebody, but it's just, it's just making the world a better place. If only for a moment, that's kind of what Mm -hmm. I walked away from years of touring with Aaron, these 20, 22 years of just hard touring. That's kind of what I walked away with. It's like, wow, there's this, there's this spirit of goodness in the American people. How can we make that even, and yes, a lot of them were believers, uh, but how can I make, how can I take that? How can I contribute to that? What's my role in this as a songwriter? Yeah. I have a, um, a another quick story, you know, regarding that. Uh, I right. Was, when, I, when I was on tour with the Rich Mullins, we did this gig up in oh, West yeah. Virginia somewhere. It was a little town, very rustic, you know, um, took forever to get there because of the mountain climb and uh once we got there it was it was like drizzling and very like in the woods sort of thing you know and um we check into the hotel and it's dinner time and we come downstairs and we ask the um clerk there you know where can we eat and uh, so she goes, well, you know, we have a diner connected to the hotel and they're open until around eight o'clock. And we said, well, what kind of food is it? She says, well, you know, regular diner food, hamburgers, French fries, hot dogs, sh- shakes and stuff like that. And then nice. I think Rick, Rick Elias said something like, well, uh, I think we want something a little more sufficient than that and um, we, 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 you know, we 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 want like uh tablecloths and 
silverware and glasses. And she went, oh, you mean fine dining. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. That's great. But she was, you know, she was just like, it was natural. It was real, you know. Yeah, it was a category. You know, it's fine dining when you want a tablecloth, baby. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah. No, yeah, that I I know that I know these experiences similar things, you know, or or you walk in, you know, you you've gigged and it's, you know, it's twelve midnight and you walk into the place and it's just closing up and the guy said, oh, you know, we're we're closed, but uh, um, then you know there are four of you guys and you're all, all four of you or five of you or whatever, you know, are standing there looking kind of hung dog and it's like, but I tell mm-hmm. you what, I tell you what, let's limited menu, I'll fire up that grill. What do you guys want? That happened right. a lot of times too. Somebody oh, yeah. put it an extra hour. And lost an hour sleep when he could have gone home or she could have gone home, and they, you know, they were just so generous, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me, um, do you have any one moment with the vigilantes that is a special prize moment to you, and you know, you think about it from time to time and get a little smile on your face, uh, just from touring yeah, I- or recording. Well, I, I got to say the the cornerstone crowd was hard to beat. We we had some big crowds, but it's it was fun playing main stage that four or five times and just bringing what we were doing, you know, because we 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 weren't the the Christian band thing. We weren't really part of the CCM thing in kind of the same way. Our label deals were secular deals. We released one record, which was a mm-hmm. compilation record, into the Christian bookstore market. Uh, it was it was released actually by Capricorn, but it it came through Warner Resound that label, and it did really well. And it kind of galvanized things for us in some ways. But in reality, it was record number seven for us. But most of the stuff we did was sort of in the secular ballpark. But you know, we so we we would you know on one night we would play Shubas in Chicago, and then the next night we'd be playing you know two two doors down in, in uh, Bushnell, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and and playing two nights there. So it was it was a beautiful thing, and I I tried to keep the thing balanced. I cannot remember the name of the uh, the festival in Holland, but I think we played in front of like maybe ten thousand oh, people over uh, there. Yeah, Flavo um, Fest. Flavo Fest. Yeah, that kind of went, and I don't think I don't think any of those kids knew who the heck we were. I, I really don't. But we played a storm and set. Somehow or another, we played. Kevin pointed it at our drummer, uh, Kevin Hoyer, a uh, phenomenal drummer. He lives over in uh, in South Carolina. Kevin pointed out. He said, "I don't know how we did it, but we played a twelve song set in the time, <laughs> the amount of time that it usually takes us to play nine songs." And I said, really? He said, yeah, listen to the board tape. Everything we played was train wreck speed. It was just like, get on, get out. And, and I think they loved the 10,000 kids. You know, it was great. It was, it was a heady moment. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. We're overseas. I know they don't all speak English and, you know, I, I don't speak Dutch, but it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful moment to me, Aaron, just because I, it felt like things transcended all the barriers you know, that weren't really barriers at all. So that was, that was a good moment. Um, yeah. Had numerous Flav- great gigs in Philadelphia and, and in, in Chicago was great. Chicago was actually our best radio market in a lot of ways. So, Oh really? Uh, mm-hmm. w- WXRT was, was all over a number of records and it made playing at Shub as a, a beautiful thing. You know, John Thompson. I do know John. Yeah. Yeah. John, John is a neighbor of mine. I could walk to his house in five minutes. Nice, yeah. He's a good one. Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's got like a tribe for a family now. Don't they have like four yeah, or five children? Yeah, yeah. I love John. He's he's a very gifted writer, and he's a gifted musician too. I, I like his heart when he mm-hmm. writes his music. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, Flavor Fest, man. I used to love to go there because, for one, uh-huh. you had to fly into Amsterdam. And yep. then you take that ride out to Flavoland, and it's just beautiful, you know? Um, no kidding. For, for, for the listeners, Flavofest was held at a horticultural park. You know, it was yeah. a horticultural theme park, you know, where they had tulips, honey, um, all the, it's just plants, bees, honey, everywhere. And they had this, they had this stage there for concerts. And, ah, oh, it was great. I used to love that. Just the beauty yeah, of pollen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the windmills are right there in the background. You know, just, it's exactly. just like this is. Exactly. Oh, golly, no. it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they yeah, still we loved that it. festival. I don't know. We only played it the one time. We only played it the one time. But we were there three nights, you know, playing the main stage and then some of the smaller tent stages. I know you guys did the same sort of thing, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. I, I kind of miss that. I don't miss the flying side of it now. I think airports are a little more treacherous than they used to right. be. Right. Or at least baggage world. You know, I, I you know lost a guitar on numerous uh, flights, uh, numerous flights. There was one flight in particular to the UK. We were on radio too. A guy named Bob Harris, who was a big Americana fan, he broadcast out of Nashville once in a while. Um, they call him Whispering Bobby as a real low FM radio voice. But mm-hmm. he put together an Americana show and Vigilantes. He was a big fan of Buddy Miller and Emmy Lou Harris, and Buddy was backing up Emmy and Spy Boy at the time. So we got on board that thing, and Bob loved the band. So we did numerous shows in Bob's studio in London, and that that was a good springboard for a number of tours. But after a while, Aaron, it was like God, we got, gear was going lost. It was getting wrecked. It's like I can't mm. bring this stuff over here anymore, um, right. in good conscience, you know. And I, it, you know how it is. It's hard making good music on on bad equipment. So you know the idea. Yeah. Of getting like a cheaper guitar just didn't wasn't going to work for me. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, that that kind of dried up. It became oversaturated because a lot of American singer songwriters, uh, guys and girls, started playing through there. But I think pretty much by two thousand seven or eight, it had kind of started to dry up. Mm. Yeah, might, it might be coming back again. Exciting like, times. Yeah. Oh, it was. You yeah. know. Yeah. yeah, we used to play this festival. Uh, it was a Pentecostal. Uh, music festival called uh, Spring Harvest, and right on. play Green Belt and Flavo. And, yeah, Green Belt I was mean, fun. Yeah, yeah, they were all fun. It was, and we used to take all of our equipment, all of it, in these huge big cases, and fly that stuff over there. I remember one time coming back from from uh, Green Belt. Uh, we had a delay in our flight because they couldn't put our, couldn't get our instruments on the flight because Glenn Campbell's organization had already taken up all the baggage space on the plane. Oh my! <laughs> so everybody was taking all of their stuff, you know. And yeah, so we that's just sat there at the airport. Yeah. Psych. Man, you've got yeah, some great stories. That. That's that is truly awesome. <laughs> I, I, I the only story I have about a guitar getting wrecked is that I had to, the guitar got wrecked. It was a 1969 uh, uh, Gibson J50 that. Uh, that uh, Steve Rule's guitar techs there in Nashville had actually fixed up. It, it sounded, thing sounded great, but the top was actually unglued. It was coming off of it. It had been trounced so hard on the tarmac. And I, I had no, no luthier. There was no way to get it repaired. And the tour was like, you know, 25 shows in 30 days. So I got little strips of duct tape 
and I taped it all around the part of the top of the guitar that was ready to come off. And as long as I sat and didn't stand and move around too much, it stayed in tune. But the funny <laughs> thing about it was, is all the all the kids that came out to the pub shows, the punk rock kids thought, man, that guitar is so cool looking. I think that's a great yeah. idea. I'm going to do that to my guitar. It's like, right, actually, right. this is totally utilitarian. This is not for looks. This is totally the damn guitar together. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, Want to buy it? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Yeah, it's not worth much anymore, so... Hey, Bill, we'll, we have run out of time here, but, man, I'm, it's been great talking to you, you know. And uh, You are a generous man, and thank you. Thank oh, you man. for your kindness. I, I'm so glad you were able to do the show, and uh, I wish you all the best. And uh, tell you all your this friends they can listen Jack to you. Group. They missed you I'm today. Weekly on my journey tomorrow. through the business, as I take you behind it's, the uh, road, interviewing industry notables such as Al Dimiola, Michael McDonald, and Al Jerome, to name but a few. Listen to their stories on being in the studios recording number one hits and onto the stages throughout the globe. Allow me to be your music historian. You can hear me live every Monday at 2 p.m. and every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time or 24-7 on JackieScroove.com. Ready to get your groove on? Hi, this is Tim Dolbear from Eclectica Studios. I'm a full-time mixing and recording engineer. I work with Grammy winners, labels, and indie artists. Using state-of-the-art digital mixing and restoration tools and the very best in analog gear. Really, though, it's my ability to bring tracks to life and fulfill your vision for your music. This has made me sought after by producers and artists worldwide. So spend your time working on music and not chasing a mix down a rabbit hole. Go to timdolbear.com and check out our free one-song mix offer. You know what's all around you every waking moment of your life? Marketing. You're choking on it. I'm Scott Robertson, and when it comes to strategic PR, branding, and marketing, I've seen it all. And actually, I'm still seeing it because bad marketing never sleeps. Join me each week on May the Best Brand Win right here on Intertalk Radio and learn how to make the marketing for your brand unforgettable. Are you serious about your music? Are you ready to run with the big dogs? The experts at Pitbull Audio have the gear to get you into the game. From leading manufacturers like Mesa Boogie, Fender, Pioneer, and American Audio. To sound your best, you need the best. Pitbull Audio can deliver in rehearsal, on stage, and into the big time. Dropping beats, shredding guitar, or making the crowd roar. Whatever you dream, Pitbull Audio can help make it happen. We are Pitbull Audio. We want you to play it loud. PitbullAudio.com.